That last song tracks along nicely with Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You can go ahead and find Acts 2 in your Bible as we study Peter's sermon here in Acts 2, uh, 14 through 36. Thank you, Wes, for reading that so well. Basically, we've heard the sermon, right? We read the sermon, so we can just be dismissed. Peter uh, preached it through Wes, and so we're good to go. Now, we'll dig into it a little bit more today, and I'll do my best to follow what I think is Peter's outline and help you grasp what Peter is saying. I will do something a little different than what Peter did. You'll notice through this text consistently that Peter is preaching a Jewish sermon. He preaches to the people of Israel that are gathered there for the celebration of Pentecost, and he's sharing the gospel with these Jews. And so he's addressing them as Israelites, and there are some specific things in this sermon that are meant just for Israel. And so uh, we'll try to grasp those as we go along and understand how it applies to us specifically as the church today and what that means for us as we work through this text. But as Peter preaches to them, he he makes something obvious. He's trying to make something clear. He hints at it in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. He says something similar to that at the very end of his sermon in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that assuredly God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, the word made there doesn't mean that God turned Jesus into this. The word made means that he revealed, he made it known. He showed clearly that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And the word Christ was a Jewish word. It's the word Messiah. And faithful Jews, faithful Israel, had been looking for the coming of Messiah. There was a promise to David that a son of David would reign on the throne of David over Israel, and that the reign of that Messiah would be eternal. And so for centuries, the Israelites, the faithful Jews, had been looking for this Messiah, this king who would reign on the eternal throne. What Peter's telling them in this sermon is that that king had come, and his name was Jesus. They had been blind to what should have been obvious. They had missed what God had made clear. So Peter, in many ways, is addressing their blindness to the words of God in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and the works of God through Jesus the Messiah, and the resurrection of the Messiah from the grave, and finally the ascension of the Messiah to the Father's right hand, all proving that Jesus is truly who He said He was. We can all go through times of blindness, kind of like what these Jewish men were facing here in Peter's sermon, where we miss the obvious. We don't realize what's truly there. One day in junior high, I was engaged in a conversation with my friend. We were walking to gym class down the hall, and he and I were talking back and forth and walking at a pretty good pace. We were excited about something, who knows, probably that it was 
PE, and so, you know, it's much more fun than regular classes, and so we were on our way there to class, and uh, there was something in front of me that I didn't see. In fact, I walked straight into an open wooden door, and so, you know, whatever that is, inch and a half, two inches uh, of door uh, sticking straight out towards me, and I just nailed it with my head, you know, so had this big door-shaped bruise down the side of my face. Because I've been looking at my friend and just plowed right into it, oblivious to what was right in front of me. And you're all going, oh, that explains a few things about him. We understand now. <laughs> we can be blind to things that should be obvious. And this is true in our lives as well. You, you may have even trusted in Christ as Savior and yet can still be oblivious to what that means to your daily life, how the gospel, the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, died for you, rose again, and ascended to the Father's right hand. What does that mean on a Tuesday when you wake up, get ready for work, and there's this challenge that faces you at the office, there's this challenge going on in your family, What does that mean that Jesus is both Lord and Christ as you go through life? And so, as Peter seeks to kind of pull away the blindness of these Israelite men looking for the Messiah and completely missing Him, may the Lord open our eyes to see Jesus in our day-to-day lives and how His identity changes everything about how we go through Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and Sundays, and whatever it is that we face until He comes again. As we dig into this text, Peter makes his point pretty obvious at the end of the sermon in verse 36. I won't wait till then to reveal it, I'll say it at the beginning. Verse 36 goes like this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so we'll put it this way today. Believe God's testimony. Jesus is God and Messiah. Now in the text, as we're going to see, I think the word Lord, it it can just mean master. But I think in this sermon, as he preaches to Israel, the word Lord was the word used in place of the personal name of God. They would not say Jehovah. And so instead of saying Jehovah, they would say Adonai or Lord. And so when Peter says Lord here, I think he's implying to these men of Israel, that Jesus is God. But He's not just God. God's also revealed that Jesus is Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. And we get used to saying the word Christ. We're very familiar with it. it. It would be a little different if the word Messiah was actually translated Messiah all through the New Testament. Every time you see the word Christ, you're seeing the word Messiah in Greek. Okay? Now, we just think of the word Christ, and that's great. We can call him Christ. That's part of the title of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is the chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would reign on David's throne, and that's part of what Peter reveals here. And so we're going to think through that God's testimony to us today is this, Jesus is God and Jesus is Messiah. We're going to think through what that means for our lives. Peter begins his sermon by drawing them in, actually, he kind of meets them where they are. 
Do you remember how our text last week ended? The Spirit had been poured out. The disciples, the the twelve, and probably all 120 that were gathered there at that time began speaking in foreign languages so that those gathered there could hear and understand about the works of God. And it led to a question in chapter 2, verse 12. All these people are hearing them speak in their own tongues, the wonderful works of God, in verse 12. So they're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And then there's another group of people in verse 13 who are saying, ah, they're just drunk. So there's two responses, and that's where Peter begins. In verse 14, he stands up. The eleven are nearby. He raises his voice, and he says to those gathered there, Religious men, Israelites, gathered to worship at the feast. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Heed my words. He's telling them ultimately to believe what God has said, what God has testified to them. Verse 15, he refutes their first Uh, doubting. Ah, these men are just drunk. He refutes it here. He says, no, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. They usually counted from sunrise, and so we're looking at about nine o'clock in the morning, something like that. So Peter's point is they can't be drunk this early in the day. They're not. Instead, what is this that you are seeing? That's the question. What does this mean? And in this first section, verses 14 through 21, Peter answers that question by giving them an example from something they would have known. He refers back to something that as devout Jewish men, they would have understood. He reminds them of a prophecy in the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And Peter quotes this prophecy, and this is quite amazing because as far as we know, Peter didn't have a copy of the Old Testament scriptures there with him. You shouldn't be imagining a common sermon like today where I've got my notes and I've got my Bible. No, Peter's just winging it here. This was not a prepared sermon. You know, he, he didn't know this opportunity was going to come. He hadn't been working the week before to write all these ideas down and and study his texts and so forth. No, this is the Spirit working through Peter, bringing to remembrance key texts. And so Peter quotes four or five verses from what we would sort of think of as an obscure text in the Old Testament. It's pretty impressive. So Peter goes to Joel chapter 2, and in that passage, there's a prophecy of God pouring out His Spirit and certain things that would happen when God pours out His Spirit. You notice them there. Uh, The occasion that Joel is prophesying about, it says, will be in the last days. And God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Already we're beginning to see that this is an example of the fact that amazing things happen when the Spirit's poured out, but not a fulfillment of the Joel 2 passage. The Spirit's not poured out on all flesh at this point. But in the Joel 2 text, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Your sons and daughters, the word your there is referring to the people of Israel to whom Joel is prophesying. So all the sons and daughters of Israel will receive God's Spirit 
Again, not what happens here in Acts 2, though it is the pouring out of the Spirit. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. So we have prophecy, visions, and dreams. Here in Acts 2, we have tongues. So again, a little different. On my men's servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So there's no exclusion. Everyone, from the highest class to the lowest class, men and women, sons and daughters, everybody in Israel will receive the Spirit of God on this day that Joel is predicting. We learn more about it in verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, the book of Joel is very much about the day of the Lord, and it's referred to there in verse 20. And so that helps us gain a little bit of the timeline of what Joel is prophesying. He's prophesying about the day of the Lord, which is an extension of time in which Israel would face great difficulty. They would go through trial. They would go through trouble. And that difficulty was meant to lead to repentance. That Israel would turn to the Lord and call out to Him. And then the Lord would pour out His Spirit on all of Israel after that repentance. Now, we believe this refers to the tribulation, a period of time when God will draw Israel back to Himself and then pour out His Spirit as He prepares them for the kingdom that would come after the tribulation. And so this is what Joel is prophesying about here. So why then does Peter quote this text? Well, he's explaining that this amazing event is because of the work of the Spirit. Just like they would have known to look for the coming of the Spirit at the last days after, the, after this day of the Lord, so too now they're seeing the mighty works of the Spirit. And what was the key thing that came along with the pouring out of the Spirit? Well, as we'll see in Joel chapter 2 in just a little bit, it was repentance. Peter quotes it there in verse 21 of Acts chapter 2, which is quoting verse 32 of Joel 2. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, the pouring out of the Spirit, the work of God by His Spirit among His people was meant to call them to look to God. To call on the name of the Lord. To, call, to repent and to turn to the Lord's salvation. So here, I think, is what we glean from Peter's first point here. The work of the Spirit reminds us to look for God's salvation. Just like Joel had prophesied, there would be this pouring out of the Spirit. And it would go along with repentance in a time when Israel would turn to the Lord and it would lead into the kingdom when the Messiah would reign. So too now Peter gives them the example that, look, you're seeing the Spirit at work, so now call on the name of the Lord. Repent and believe. In Peter's mind, and in fact in reality, I think it was actually possible that this could have led to the event that Joel talked about in Joel 2. 
if the nation of Israel had then repented and turned to the Lord. In fact, we'll see in Acts chapter 3 that there seems to be another presentation from Peter to the people of Israel. If you'll accept Jesus as Messiah, then the day of the Lord could be now and the kingdom could be ushered in. But they reject him once again. So, it is not yet the days of Joel 2, but the Spirit has been poured out because Jesus has shed His blood on the cross and has ascended to the throne of God and has sent His Spirit just as He promised His disciples that He would do. And the works of the Spirit among us remind us to look for God's, uh, for God's salvation. The works of the Spirit remind us to turn to the Lord for salvation. There's a story told by the chief of police in Portland, Oregon, about a time when he was a police officer in Los Angeles. I don't know if he's the police officer in this story, but it's at least a story that he had experienced and was aware of. While he was serving in L.A., a woman was upstairs in her bedroom when she heard someone breaking in downstairs. Afraid, she crawled under her bed and uh, grabbed her phone and was able to call 911, except that the emergency system somehow was giving her problems and took her to the voicemail menu. If you'd like to talk to a customer service agent, press 1. If you'd like to leave a message, press 2. Just go, this is not what I need right now. <laughs> I need to talk to somebody. And so the story goes that she began to rack her brain. If 911's not working, what do I do? Well, it occurred to her that she could maybe call a donut shop. So she searched for the nearest donut, donut shops and uh, called the nearest one and asked the employee of the shop if there were any police officers in the shop. <laughs> the employee said, why, yes, there is. She said, may I speak with him? It's an emergency. And so she reported the crime going on in her house, and the police officer left the store immediately and went to her house and was able to scare off the thief before any harm was done. Now, of course, that's just a stereotype, but in this case, it turned out that it worked. She heard something in her home. She called the right place, and then she called a second place, and it worked. The police officer was able to come and to save her. She heard the sound. She knew who she needed to reach. Call the police. This is sort of what Peter is doing with these Israelite men. What you're seeing is the work of God's Spirit. Now what you should think is turn to the Lord and repent. The pouring out of the Spirit is a sign of the Messiah. It's a sign that God is ready and preparing for His kingdom. So turn to the Lord. Lift your eyes to His salvation is what Peter is calling to them as he answers their question, what does this mean? It means you need to look to God for salvation. So to we ought to look to God's salvation when we see the works of the Spirit around us. 
You see, Jesus had done here just what he had promised. You remember his farewell discourse to his disciples in John 14 through 17 when he tells them that the Spirit would come and though he had been dwelling with them, the Spirit would now dwell in them and would help them. Or in John 14, 26, when he told his disciples that the Spirit would instruct them and bring his words to remembrance, maybe kind of like with Peter remembering Joel 2 here. The Spirit in in John 15, 26 would testify about Jesus as Messiah. Here it's happening. In fact, this is really the first full fulfillment of Acts 1, 8. Peter is witnessing to the Christ that Jesus is the Messiah. John 16, 7 and 8, we're told that the Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Exactly what's happening right here as Peter speaks to these Israelite men. You and I also see the Spirit in one another as we see the fruit of the Spirit. When in your brothers and sisters in Christ, you see love that is sacrificial. You see joy that has no earthly explanation. You see peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. When you see these things in one another, you see the Spirit at work. And it's a reminder of us, a reminder to us to keep our gaze lifted to heaven. It's a reminder of the work that God has done in His Spirit and that we are participating in that. As you see God's Word at work in your heart or in the hearts of others to convict of sin, to help us grow, to make changes, you see the work of the Spirit and it lifts our gaze to our God and to our Savior and to what He's doing among us. When we see this work around us, we are reminded of the kindness of God. In Joel 2, listen to the words where Joel calls the people to repentance based on the day of the Lord. He says this in verses 12 and 13. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. The day of the Lord that Joel 2 predicted was meant to draw the people to repentance, to lift their eyes and look to the Lord. And so too, as we see the Spirit around us, it's meant to cause us to turn to the Lord as well. As Romans 2.4 reminds us, would you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We can so often be blind of the goodness of God around us, Blind to the ways He's at work among us. How He used His Word to convict me of sin. How I saw His joy in my friend who's going through a time of suffering. And to lift my gaze again to the Lord to see His kindness all around me. That indeed, He is at work. And indeed, I must keep my eyes on His salvation. Maybe you've seen the kindness of the Lord in God's people. Maybe as you're gathered here today, you see afresh the kindness of God and people who are hopefully loving one another, 
sacrificing for one another, gathering to sing God's praises. All of these things, evidences of God's Spirit among us. And as you see that kindness of God to give us His Spirit, today's the day you might turn to the Lord in repentance. The works of the Spirit remind us to look for God's salvation. As we come to the second section, Peter now focuses in on the works of Christ as the works of God. And he'll focus on his signs and wonders and miracles, but he'll also focus on his death and on his resurrection. These things are the works of God in Christ. So in verse 22... Peter begins answering this question, who is this Messiah then? It's Jesus. He gives them his name. It's interesting that verse 21 ends with this question, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's almost as if the Israelite listeners were were asking, okay, well, if by the Spirit's presence you're claiming that the Messiah has come, who then is this name upon whom we should call? And he answers it in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. He points back to Jesus' works while he was alive. And this was something Jesus pointed to many times. In fact, he preached himself that he did not do the works in his own strength. But he did the Father's works by the Spirit in him. So the triune God was testifying in Christ by his signs and wonders and miracles that this Jesus is the Messiah. That's what it all pointed to. Jesus is the Savior that God sent. And they knew this. They saw his signs. They couldn't, de- they couldn't deny his miracles. How many times did we read in John of the chief priests and Pharisees gathering together and thinking, wow, we just saw him heal someone's blindness. What are we going to say about this? They knew what Jesus did. They saw his works and they knew the works were the works of God. Only God could do these things. But verse 23 begins to move to other territory begins to talk more about this Jesus and says that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Meaning God in His sovereign plan determined to deliver Jesus over to the hands of both the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. That they could fulfill their evil purposes. Because God in His sovereign rule knew that that's exactly what needed to happen in order for Jesus to be the Savior. This verse is a a wonderful collision of both God's sovereign rule over all things and the responsibility of mankind. Because here you have the rulers, both Jew and Gentile, held accountable for the fact that they crucified Jesus, that their acts were evil and that they were working in opposition to God. And yet you have the sovereign rule of God because we know that this was not outside of God's plan, that God from eternity past determined to provide a Savior and determined to deliver that Savior to the evil deeds of these rulers so that... Jesus could die for our sins and rise again. Whoa! This is a rich verse right here. It's pretty obvious to me that Peter has God's Spirit at this point 
(laughs) This is a Spirit-empowered sermon. But not only did this Jesus die for sinners at the hands of lawless men, God also raised him up, verse 24. Having loosed the pains of death, the pains of death, it can be translated as birth pangs, actually. And so uh, you may remember the illustration that Jesus used when he went to death with his disciples, that it would be like the labor pains of a woman. You'll have a time of mourning as I die, but then when I rise, you will have joy. The pains of death will be gone. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And then he says, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Why? Because through the resurrection of Christ, the pain and threat of death is gone. We know that we may face it. We may die in the flesh before Christ's return for His own But we know because of Jesus, that death is not the end. The pains of death have been defeated. Why? As verse 24 says, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. (laughs) When, When Peter explains that Jesus did the works of God in his miracles, in his death, and in his resurrection, he's not explaining that he was just empowered by God. Peter's explaining that Jesus was God. And that's what this final phrase means. It was not possible that death could hold him. I love that. So in God's predetermined plan, he said, sure, you fulfill your evil desires and put him to death. Just try to hold him down. (laughs) And as Jesus died for our sins and death and Satan tried to hold him, it was not possible because Jesus conquered our sin and death. And through his cross and resurrection showed that indeed Jesus is doing the works of God because he is God. The Messiah, the King, God in flesh. Jesus' works were the works of God. It's undeniable. Yesterday, I worked on a project at home. Uh, A few months ago, a a rock had flown up and hit my windshield and uh, created one of those little bullseye patterns, you know, down towards the... Thankfully, it was down towards the bottom... And uh, I let it go for months, but thankfully it it didn't grow, it didn't spread or anything like that. And so I've been trying to think of a way I could fix that. And I really couldn't come up with any way to do it on my own. So finally I gave in and bought a little kit online, a windshield repair kit. And it comes with this X-shaped piece of white plastic with a little circle in the middle and Four suction cups looks like, you know, something NASA would use in outer space or something. It looks like you're doing something really high tech. And so what it does is you, you uh, suction that to the windshield around the spot and you center that hole over the spot. And then you, you screw down a, a pressure nozzle that just puts some pressure down on that bullseye spot. And there's a rubber tip that kind of seals it. And so that little X is putting pressure on that spot. And then you drop some drops of this clear white resin into the tube. And then there's another thing you screw down. And that forces the resin into the cracks. And so because there's that pressure, 
The resin doesn't just come out, it stays in and is forced back into the cracks. And this is pretty amazing. I actually watched as the cracks in the glass, as the resin crept down those cracks, the cracks would kind of just disappear. It was really weird. And so you, you did this, and then there were a few more steps in the process to get all that resin in there, and then you put the car in the sunlight, and the sun uh, dries the, or, or hardens the resin and seals it all up, and then you, you scrape it, the, any leftovers off, and, it, and it's you know, going to be mostly gone. And probably if I'd done it perfectly, it would be gone, but <clears throat> you can still see it a little bit. But it was amazing. It sealed it up. It, it sort of fixed the problem. It's not going to spread any further. Water's not going to get in there. Uh, and I was just impressed by how well this thing worked. And it became clear to me that without those specific tools, there really was no way I could have done that. I mean, I could have tried to drop like some super glue down on top of it and, you know, press it in with my thumb, but then my thumb stuck to the windshield. And then, you know, you've got all sorts of issues. Thankfully, I didn't head that route. But this tool was really impressive. I mean, it's, you know, 15 bucks on Amazon or something like that. And it, and it solved the problem. It sealed it up and it did the job exactly as it was intended to do. And I really couldn't have done it without that tool. Just the right amount of pressure and just the right spot and the right kind of resin. Who knows what that's even made of, that it just disappears in glass. And all these things were clear. It just needed to be this tool. And this is sort of what Peter's doing as he refers to Christ as doing the works of God. He's showing these Israelite men it could only be Jesus. He's the only one. Nothing else can solve your problem. He did the works of God. He died on the cross. And he conquered death by rising from the grave. It's him. He's God in the flesh. Jesus works were the works of God. It's an undeniable truth. For you here today, you may not have trusted in Christ as Savior, and so it begs the question, what will you do with Jesus, who worked the works of God? whose death and resurrection are parts of undeniable history. What will you do with Jesus? This also reminds us that God has all power, that His sovereign plan sometimes allows us to step into our evil ways and do evil things, and God in His sovereign rule is using it as a part of His good plan. And the the cross reminds us of that. Even when we see things as dark as death, we know that God's sovereign rule is not undone. The cross reminds us He still sits on the throne and uses even the most evil act in history for His good purposes. Finally, we're reminded that God was at work through the Son by the Spirit and that He works in us the same way today. Friends, you and I can work the works of God, so to speak. Why? Because Jesus died for us, and so now we're united to Him. The Spirit dwells in us. And just as Jesus did the works of the Father apportioned to Him by the strength of the Spirit, so too we are to do the works of the Father because we're united to the Son by the strength of the Spirit. And so as we bear witness, as we walk in the Spirit, as you see the Spirit at work among us, you're seeing God at work in and through you. And that's cool, even on a Tuesday morning, to remember that with the presence of God's Spirit in me, 
The Lord Jesus left me here to continue his works. And that's why I'm alive today. As we come to the final section in verses 25 and following, Peter refers to two passages, and so we'll separate them out into two points briefly here. But he looks at two psalms. And what he does here is he shows how both the resurrection and then also the ascension prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And so our third point today is that Jesus' resurrection proves his identity as Messiah. Not only is it a work of God, but it was prophesied that the Messiah would rise. And it may have been that these Israelite men were asking, okay, well, if you say that this Jesus is the Messiah, what was predicted of the Messiah is that he would literally reign on David's throne in the kingdom. So if Jesus is truly this Messiah, why is he not sitting on David's throne reigning right now? It's almost as if Peter answers that question in this next section. So in verse 25, he quotes Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David. And so David is speaking there in verse 25. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. This is all pretty typical psalms of David here. David's confident the Lord is with him and he has hope in the Lord. The Lord is near and so he's not shaken. Verse 25, David's heart rejoices. His tongue is glad. uh, His flesh rests in hope. Why? Because the Lord is near. Verse 27, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Here's where the psalm begins to apply what David is talking about. The first phrase, uh, David is thinking of himself. I think he says, you, God, will not leave my soul in Hades. David knows that he will die, but he knows that his soul will not be left to the grave. I think David believes in a resurrection. But why would David believe in a resurrection? Well, notice the second half of verse 27. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The tense changes here. The subject changes here. Now David is talking about this Holy One of God, which I think refers to the Messiah. That God's Messiah will not see decay. That's what the word corruption means. The Messiah will not see decay. His flesh will not decay. So I think David believed that the Messiah would never see decay. If he died, he would be raised to life and live forevermore. And so verse 28 continues with this sense of hope. You've made me know the paths of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. David rejoiced in the Lord because even if he died, he knew the Messiah would live forever. And so too, David would be raised to life and would not be left to the grave. This was David's hope because of the Messiah. And so Peter breaks that down in verses 29 and following. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. that He's both dead and buried. <laughs> And his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, depending on where Peter was in Jerusalem, he might have even been able to point to David's tomb. It was a known location within Jerusalem there. And so Peter's preaching and he's saying, look, David's not talking about himself never seeing decay. There he is in the ground, decaying. 
Peter's not trying to be insulting to David here. He's just saying, look, David's not talking about himself when he says, Holy One. He saw decay. He's still dead in his grave, decaying. So what was his hope that his soul would not be left in the grave? What was his hope that there would be a resurrection? It was in this Holy One. And so Peter goes on to explain who this Holy One is. Verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And so 32 ends this section that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah, because David had known, David had predicted that the Messiah would be raised to life and would reign forevermore. We know that David knew this because Psalm 132, 11 says this, The Lord has sworn in His truth to David, He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the offspring of your body. Or you could look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish His kingdom. He should build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this Davidic son, the greater son of David, would sit upon the throne forever. And that was David's hope. And so Peter's explaining to these Jewish men, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. When I played soccer, there were certain times in the game when we had the chance to take a free kick and somebody had been fouled or something like that. And depending on where that free kick was located, uh, you had the chance to maybe even score a goal from the free kick. So sometimes it would be taken near the opponent's goal and they couldn't stand very close to the ball. They'd have to back up about 10 yards. And so the one taking the kick could have just kind of a free shot at the goal. The keeper could try to stop it. But if you were a good enough kicker, uh, a lot of times you could score off of those. So I remember one occasion in a playoff game, the score was tied and it was nearing the end of the game. And one of our teammates had been fouled just outside the box just that's near the opponent's goal. And so we had a free kick. And whenever that happened, it was always a question among the team, who's going to take it? But not that day. We all knew who was going to take it. There was a specific individual on our team. He's the best player on the team. And already that season, he had scored three or four times taking free kicks from similar places on the field. And so you could kind of sense it among the team. As soon as the whistle was blown, as soon as the... The, the spot was shown to us where the kick would be taken. We all sort of looked to this one player, and we knew he'd be taking the kick. He was the only choice. He had done it in the past. He had the skill. He was our best, best hope at scoring the goal. So he stepped up to the ball. The referee blew his whistle. It was time to take the kick. He ran up. He hit it just right. And that ball sailed into the upper 90, if you know what that is. That's the top corner of the goal. The keeper had no chance to stop it. We got the point. We won the game within the next few minutes as time expired. We chose the right guy. Chose the right guy. 
This is sort of what Peter is explaining to these Israelite men as he explains that, look, David had prophesied there's going to be one who sits on the throne forever. His body will not see corruption because he'll be raised. And he's my hope, too, that my soul will not be left in the grave, that I, too, will be raised, David said. And there's only one who can fulfill that, and it's Jesus. He's the one. And the 12 of us, or the 120 of us, as Peter is speaking there, are all witnesses. We saw him alive. This is one of the cool things about Scripture. Unlike any other ancient book that I'm aware of, it was written and distributed while the eyewitnesses were still alive. Think about that for a moment. It means that the authors couldn't have just kind of made stuff up. It wouldn't have landed. The people who witnessed it and saw it would have piped up and said, no, 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 that's not at all what happened. But there was none of that because they saw Jesus die and rise from the grave. And it's clear and obvious as God has made it, He is God and Savior. He's the one. He's the one. Finally, we go then to the ascension. Jesus' ascension proves his identity as Messiah. Now Peter quotes another passage of Scripture. Verse 33 serves as kind of a transition. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God. That's referring to the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's referring back now to them speaking in tongues. Just like Jesus promised when he went to the Father's right hand, he would send the Spirit. So it's all unfolding just as Jesus said. He poured out this which you now see and hear. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens. (laughs) Just like David's still in the grave, it wasn't David who ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. David himself knew that it would not be him. And in Psalm 110, we read these words here in Acts 2, 34 and 35. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, there's a few people referred to here in these short verses, and so it's hard to track with it first. Just follow with me. David speaking. The first word, Lord, refers to God the Father. It's the holy name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. So the Lord said to my, that's David speaking, said to my Lord. So there's another Lord mentioned. The Lord is not speaking to himself, but David is saying he has another Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Who else could be David's Lord but the Messiah, the one who would reign on David's eternal throne over Israel. And so Peter's drawing the conclusion accurately that David is referring to the Messiah here and that the Messiah would have a period of time when he sat at the Father's right hand before he came to sit on David's throne over Israel. And this says a number of things about the Messiah. That the Messiah is God, only God can sit at the right hand of God. That the Messiah is the one with the right to reign. 
that God, during this intermediary time, is making all enemies his footstool so that when he returns, he then will sit on that Davidic throne and reign forever and ever. The ascension proves his identity as Messiah. It's all unfolding exactly as God had planned it. And so the Messiah, Jesus, is at the Father's right hand even now as we speak. And so Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And again, he's speaking to Israelites. And so when he uses that word Lord, I think it refers to the name of God. He's made this Jesus, God and Messiah. And again, the word made doesn't mean that he became these things. It means that God revealed him to be these things. And Peter has just explained the proofs in hopes that it would pull away the blinders from their eyes and that they would turn to this Messiah, Jesus, for salvation. And indeed, as we'll see next week, that's exactly what happens. They say to Peter, what then shall we do? Repent. Turn to Jesus and you will be saved. As you know, the Queen of England passed away not long ago, and so there have been a number of stories floating around about her life and interaction with people. One specific story that caught my attention goes like this. It's told by royal, retired Royal Protection Officer Richard Griffin. He says this, There were two hikers coming toward us, And the queen will always stop and say hello. They were two Americans on a walking holiday, and it was clear from the moment they stopped that they didn't recognize the queen, which is fine. The American gentleman told the queen where they came from and where they were going next and where they'd been throughout Britain. And I can see it coming. They asked her majesty, and where do you live? The queen said, well, I live in London, but I have a holiday home just on the other side of these hills. The American tourist then asked Queen Elizabeth how long she'd been coming here. Oh, I've been coming here since I was a little girl, so over 80 years, said the queen. And you could see the gears turning in their minds. Then they realized something and said, if you've been coming here for 80 years, then you must have met the queen. She responded quickly, I haven't, but he, pointing to her bodyguard, meets her regularly. (laughs) So as Richard Griffin goes on, so then the guy says to me, oh, you met the queen? What's she like? Not wanting to give her away, I replied, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she has a lovely sense of humor. Then this guy comes around, puts his hand on my shoulder, and before I can see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the queen, and says, can you take a picture of me with the bodyguard? (laughs) Queen Elizabeth takes the picture, after which we traded places and also took a photo of them with Her Majesty, all the while them having no idea they were getting a photo with the queen. After they left, the queen said to me, I'd love to be a fly in the room when they show those two the photographs 
uh, to their friends in America, and hopefully somebody tells them who I am. Surely at some point they found out they had been with the queen. Maybe they saw her on her throne and realized, oh, (laughs) we had no idea. As Peter unfolds the sermon to the Israelites, he's lifting their eyes to the throne of God where Jesus sits. One they had met and talked with and opposed and even crucified. And Peter now is revealing to them the truth, like the couple who had their photo taken with the queen. No, guys, it was this Jesus whom you crucified. He's the one on the throne. He's both God and Messiah. Turn to him today. This means so much for us in our day-to-day life. Jesus is God and Messiah. There, from the Father's right hand, He is the head of the church, Ephesians 1. He secures our position before God so that even though we're dead in our trespasses and sins, He's made us alive and seated us with Him in the heavenlies. He is our mediator there at the Father's right hand, giving us access to Him. He is our advocate and friend, as 1 John 2 tells us. He's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the the shame and has now what sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high there is one savior and it is jesus and he's there at the right hand of god and that affects you every day of the week because he's ministering to you even now he conquered death so you have hope He's interceding for you before the Father. He sent His Spirit to dwell in you so that you could continue His works. It's Him. He's the one. And He did it all. And so as you face your Tuesdays, take the blinders off. Lift your eyes to heaven. See the one seated on the throne who gave his life for you, whom you crucified, yet he loves you and paid for your sins and is with you today by his spirit and is helping you to walk with him as you move forward. This is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this rich text, Peter's sermon. As we go from here today, help us to be faithful, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to live as He is our Savior, helping us every day, in and out, up and down, always with our Savior. We thank You, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.